0: Father, we thank you for the marvelous work that you've done through your son. I thank you, Father God, for the opportunity of the body of Christ to come together this morning to celebrate who you are. I thank you, Father God. And no matter what occurs around us, we have hope for a future with you. Thank you, Father God, for the work that you've done through your son. And I thank you, Father God, that we have opportunity this morning for our, our children to learn the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I ask, Father God, as our children go downstairs, that they would, they would be filled with awe and, and amazement of what Jesus has done for them. I ask now, Father God, that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would give us hope, encouragement, and that you deepen us in our conviction of who you are and what you've done by your grace. Thank you, Father, for this time this morning in Christ's name. Amen. This passage that we're in in First uh, Peter, chapter three, verse 18, is where we're going to start today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. It has some repetition. It uh, is going to repeat some common themes and, This week, someone in the office brought up this idea of, you know, why are we always repeating stuff? And the reason, the big reason is because that's what Scripture does. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture employ one of the most used methods of, of instruction, and that is repetition. Repetition is is extensively used to teach all kinds of different concepts. It's used to teach complicated tasks, and it's especially used in in the areas of of language. And every musician knows the idea of repetition, only we don't usually call it that. We call it practice. Because of our fallen nature, the sinful state of humans have a, a limited memory And our memory gets influenced from different places. And we need the repetition. It's vital for learning and mastering the concepts and skills of Christianity. So this is why God does this repetitious thing. And the the passage that we look at this morning is a restatement of the foundational truths of Christianity. This passage also has a couple of places that are really tough. And Zach is here now this morning, and I wanted to make sure that you all know that it isn't only those hard passages that I give to Zach, because I took this one on this week. I think it'd be good for you to know, too, that he went to Glendale this morning, and he's been filling the pulpit down there uh, every once in a while. So he's been out preaching this morning and serving the kingdom of God in in Glendale. Good job, brother. Let's read today's passage, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There's a couple of difficulties in this passage. We need to examine this at a deeper level then to understand what's going on. So let's start in verse 18. There's two words, also and four, that direct our attention back. They, they link us to what had occurred and to what Peter's saying now. And specifically, it goes back to 13 through 17, where Peter is reminding us not to be discouraged in suffering. The reason that we should not be concerned or, or discouraged in our suffering is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Peter talks about this. He writes about this. Christ died. He died an excruciating, horrible death. And a, a little rabbit trail this week as I was studying for this message, I found several different sources again that, that were uh, talking about crucifixion, and One of them was from a medical examiner, and, and maybe some of you have seen some of this kind of information. This one medical examiner said, from his estimation, there is no worse way to die than Roman crucifixion. There isn't anything more, more painful. As a matter of fact, if you do the etymology behind the word excruciating, when you're saying that word, you're actually referring to crucifixion. That's where we get that term. When you say, that was excruciatingly painful, you're actually referring to the death that Jesus died on the cross, the death that people suffered in crucifixion. He died that death. He was triumphant over death. So what that is an example of Yes, he died a horrible death, but he was triumphant over death. So suffering in this life is not to be a surprise for believers, nor does suffering in this life cause a believer to lose heart. We need to understand and be reminded on a regular basis that Christ died for sins. It was my sins and your sins that caused the death of Christ he willingly endured the most painful form of capital punishment on behalf of sinners. And it's your sins and my sins that put him on the cross. His perfect life was sacrificed in place of sinful lives of people like you and me. We also need to be reminded that every person will experience physical death. There may be a time when when Christ returns where that may look a little different, but right now, everybody dies. All people. Some believers have and and will die as martyrs, and that's cool. And and there's different ways people die, but all death is the result of sin. People die because of sin. Paul teaches this in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Physical death is the result of sin. And that's what's deserved, because all men and women deserve to die because of sin. Jesus did not deserve to die. He was totally without sin. He also died for all of us, all sin, the just for the unjust He was perfect and lived God's law perfectly. He died for all who were and are dead in their sinfulness. We forget sometimes, and we just kind of gloss that over. If you are outside of Christ, if you are not a believer, you are dead. And last time I checked, you're dead. Not partially dead. You know, the Princess Bride movie comes to mind, you know. Sort of dead. No, no, you're either dead or you're not. And all the years that I worked, the, the couple years I worked in the mortuary, they're all dead. Dead's dead. Totally dead. All right, so we have some reminders there. Jesus also died for a reason, and that reason is to bring us to God. So, so there's a new life that's been made, and, and we have access to God. So that even increases the amount of life that we have in comparison to that death. He died as payment for our sins so that we would have life. Believers who are saved by His payment have access. To God. Another reminder from this passage. We have access. We can be with God. And I like how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far off. You were dead. Brought near. You're alive in Christ. So you're brought near to God. Back in 1 Peter 3 18. Once for all, that, that phrase comes from a, a Greek term that means perpetual or not needing to be repeated. So, the work of Christ, the sacrifice Jesus made, was made once and is effective for all time. When He died for all sins, He died for all sins. That's a lot of sin. There's no exceptions. He died for all there isn't a time where he has to do that in the future it's finished this is uh, something that kind of is different especially from the jewish vantage point where jesus was a jew so so he understands this sacrificial thing but he only died once in the jewish system for centuries the jews slaughtered millions and millions of animals literally Millions and millions of animals. It was just a a constant flow of blood from the sacrifices to atone for sin. It could never be finished. So there's just a constant sacrifice. But Jesus' sacrificial death ended the need to bring animals to the altar. He ended that because He was the perfect sacrifice. His sacrifice was perfectly sufficient for all who would believe. Took care of it. His sacrifice totally paid the price to solve the problem of human sin. Again, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love that last phrase. It blows me away. That we might become what? The righteousness of God. Of God. That's how, that's how full this work of Jesus is. He just doesn't kind of make you right or kind of make you alive. He, he gives you the ability to, to become the righteousness of God. He provides that for you. Now in doing that, we know that Jesus died physically. His human body no longer functioned. But his spirit remained alive. And this is an important part of where Peter takes us in this passage. We, we know that Jesus physically died on the cross. There are some who want to argue the point, but we know this to be true because the Roman soldiers confirmed his death. No one had perfected the, the process of crucifixion better than the Romans. They had it excuse me, nailed. That's horrid. I know. I'm sorry. It's, it's She's leaving. Okay. Yeah. In that process, if if those soldiers thought a person on the cross was dead, they wanted to make absolute certain. And that certainty was they thrust a sword into a spear into Jesus' side and water and blood came out. He was dead. He was dead. But in verse 18, Peter says Christ was made alive. So he's setting up a contrast here. And that that phrase, he was alive, is, is referring to the eternal nature of Jesus. His body was dead, but his eternal spirit has always been alive. Never did Jesus die spiritually. However, there is a sense that we also have to be reminded of. Jesus did die, in a sense, spiritually. Remember, his reason for being on the cross was our sins. So he is completely and totally inundated and consumed by all of the sins of all of humanity for all of time. That's a lot of sin. That's a lot of sin. And while he's hanging on the cross, he's carrying the weight of all of that sin, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is it's, this may be the only place where Jesus refers to God as God, not the Father. He doesn't cry out, Father, Father. He cries out, God. And the reason he does that is because he has, for that moment in his humanity, he's been separated from God because of the sin, because sin cannot exist with, with God, This is an expression of the temporary, incomprehensible sense of separation from his Father while God's complete wrath and judgment were placed on Jesus, the Son. For that short time, Christ experienced the spiritual death that all unbelievers experience, all unbelievers live in. Even during that, though, Jesus was alive Spiritually. And this is part of what Peter wants us to grasp. Jesus conquered death by raising from the dead. However, he dies on the cross. They take his body off the cross and they place him in the tomb. He's dead. He's in the tomb. And while his body, the physical body, is in the tomb, Jesus takes a journey, he takes a trip, he goes to a prison. That's what it says. Verse 19, in which he went, in which also, in which also means in the spirit. He went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison. So he goes to this prison and he made proclamation. Kiroso there, it means to preach or to herald. So you know, in a way, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm I'm preaching, I'm I'm heralding a message. But there's a different term that is used, especially in the New Testament, that has to do with preaching the gospel, and that's not the term that is used here. So this could be any form of heralding a message, and and really the word has to do with with a representative of the government, of government officials, and and this this representative goes out into the community and and makes a procession and and loudly proclaims and announces an edict or policy, that's one way the word was used. So, so, so one of the terms, you know, Old England, you know, kind of imagery, the town crier, you know, ringing a bell going, hear ye, hear ye, pay your taxes. Right, and then they shot him. No, just... This word was also used to describe the pro- procession that was used by the Romans when there was a, a military triumph. And that's an important aspect of this term for this passage. The Romans would go out and they'd conquer somebody, they'd come back, and they'd have this massive celebration through the streets. The word is used for proclamation. Jesus goes, and what does he proclaim? He goes to the prison and he proclaims his victory. His victory over death, his victory over sin, over hell, over demons, and and over Satan. He proclaims what he's victorious in. Who does he proclaim that to? Well, this is where this passage gets difficult. This is one of the places. I believe that this is referring to the spirits. Those are demons. Because the word that is used there for spirits is never used in the New Testament to refer to people, except in some very rare instances when the grammar works that out. So the usual way this term is used is for fallen angels, for demons, or for angels. So Jesus goes to this prison, and and he declares his victory. Shows up at prison, he goes, I did it. I triumphed. Okay? Put that in your mind. Now, the spirits that are in this, this prison, the, the demons, are the demons who, in their unimaginable rebellion against God, and I say unimaginable because I, I just can't fathom how you can see God spiritually and then pull off the rebellion that the, the fallen angels did. I, I just struggle with that. Those angels, some of them, Corrupted the human race so thoroughly that God bound these demons and put them in this prison. The result of that rebellion was the destruction of a population on earth. All except for eight people. This is what Peter's teaching us. Let's do a little background here because... I think we need to grasp this deeper. In the garden, Satan apparently had a victory. We know that he's he's in opposition to God, so he goes in the garden, and it looks like he's got a victory because he convinces Adam and Eve to reject God's plan, and they sin. The result of that, there's some judgment and And God promises that eventually there will be a a destruction of Satan by what we call now the Messiah, an offspring that comes from Adam and Eve. So Satan then goes, oh my goodness, God's got a plan. I've got to have a plan. So so he opposes God's plan by trying to destroy the Messianic line. And all through the Old Testament, you see this kind of thread through there where Satan is after what? He's after ending the Messianic line so the Messiah can't be raised up. Satan wants that kind of victory. He fails. He keeps trying. He tries to kill the infant Messiah. That's part of our Christmas story, right? So all, of the, the, all the male children under two, year, two years and under, they're going to get killed. Why? Because Satan wants to end the possibility of there being a Messiah. He fails. He tempts Christ, the temptation. What does he tempt Christ? What, what's that all about? He's attempting to, to get Christ to abandon God's plan for human salvation. That's what that temptation is all about, basically. He fails. So then Satan continues to try. He's got to come up with another plan. So he begins to work through a man called Judas. He also begins to work through the people in Jerusalem, inciting the mob. And the result is the crucifixion of the Messiah, an apparent victory. An apparent victory. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He, he dies. He's put in the tomb. And he goes to this prison where, in my mind, I see all these prisoners in there going, Victory! We won! We killed the Messiah! Woo-hoo! We got it! And Jesus shows up. And messes with them. So here they are, very possibly celebrating their apparent victory. And Jesus proclaims victory. And then he raises from the dead. Victorious. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over those demons in prison. He's victorious over Satan. They're all defeated. The demonic forces that we fight against on a regular basis as believers are most likely not those that are in prison because they're locked up. So I don't believe I believe there's there's two different sets going on here. Are we still in a battle with demonic forces and we have to go yeah, we are. Believers continue to struggle against the unbound forces of Satan who continue to influence and corrupt the world system in which we live. And for they they're trying to do the same thing. Satan continues to promise men and women that they can circumvent God's law, God's plan, and still gain a good immortality. And I say good immortality because everyone has a sense of immortality. It's just that your immortality may be in hell or in heaven. There's, there's no in-between. So Satan's goal is to battle against people to convince them that there's another way than God's way. But he's not going to win because Jesus has the victory. All of what he has is a lie. Now, in Peter's second letter, he writes about these demons in prison as well, chapter 2. Second Peter chapter two, beginning verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he's gone back to the same story, the story of Noah. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, they were all brought safely through. The water. The rest of humanity drowned. It's God's act of judgment. In First Peter chapter 3, Peter says corresponding to that. So corresponding to this idea of what happened at Noah's time, is it means a copy or a counterpart or, or a, a figure pointing to something. And in the New Testament, this is an earthly expression of a heavenly reality. A symbol of a spiritual truth. So what is that? Well, it's it's obvious. Noah's family, they were preserved in the ark. That's comparable to the believer's salvation in Christ. Noah's family surviving the flood, that, that's an example of believers that are safeguarded and sustained through God's judgment of sin by Christ. Now, this next phrase, that, this becomes one of those places that's difficult for us. Because Peter makes the statement, Bapt- baptism now saves you. Oh, man, what are we going to do with that? And and I just, all you know, let Jack preach that. <laughs> it's actually not that difficult if you dig. In Scripture, baptism does not just relate to water baptism that we do as a ritual within the body of Christ. The word is used in a variety of different situations and contexts. The word baptism is from baptizo, and it literally means to immerse. This means you can be immersed in anything. You know, one of my hobbies is, is woodworking. So I can be immersed in woodworking. Right? There's splinters involved. I could be immersed in fishing, Brother. So, I could say, I'm baptized into the woodworking. And that's true to the way that word is is used. Peter is using the term baptism in a figurative way of describing the believer's immersion into Christ. The same way that Noah was immersed in water, but he and his family were also immersed in the divine judgment that God was burning on the entire world. He's, in, he's immersed in both. Yeah, he's in the water. But really what he's immersed in is God's judgment. God's judgment is happening. The earth is flooded totally and completely. That's what he's immersed in. And God brings them through that. Because they're in the ark. People who have obediently trusted in the work of Jesus will survive final judgment of fire and destruction that God will bring at the end of times. Why? Because they're immersed in Christ. That's the point. Because we believe in Christ, we who believe will pass through judgment safely. So Peter's referring to a spiritual reality of the believer's security in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might have might walk in newness of life. What are we baptized into? In that passage he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being immersed into Christ Jesus. Peter is not talking about water baptism. Instead, he is using Noah and the ark to illustrate the truth that believers go through trials and difficulties and judgments and are protected and taken through because of the work of Christ. We are immersed in Christ. That takes us through the difficulties and the judgment that's coming. Salvation does not come through any ritual including water baptism. It comes through immersion into Christ. So what's, what's with water baptism then? Well, water baptism that we make such a big deal out of, because we're Baptists, that, that is the, the outward sign, the symbolism, the, the obedience that reflects what has already occurred in the heart because we're immersed in Christ. Water baptism is that outward sign of what Christ has done because we're immersed in Him. It's an act of obedience. It's a result of being saved. Peter goes on. He says, appealing to God for a good conscience. In verse 21. So this has to do with some conditions. God has some conditions. If you've noticed that throughout his dealing with us, he he puts some conditions on some things. He establishes some conditions that have to take place before a person can be immersed in Christ. To be immersed in Christ, a person must first agree with God about their sinful condition. And then that person calls out for God to help them. Appealing to God for a conscience free of accusation and eternal condemnation happens when a person demonstrates they are tired of the dominion of of sin over their life. A person desires to be free from the guilt of sin and the threat of eternal judgment in hell. The person seeks cleansing that is found only in the shed blood of Jesus. So when we agree with God, when we come to a point in our life where we say, I don't like who I am and what I do, and I don't like the sin, and I'm scared of hell. I agree with God about my condition. That's repentance. That's really literally what that word means. I am just going to change the way I think about who I am, and I'm going to agree with God about who I am. That leads to a plea to God to forgive me. Because when we agree with God, all of a sudden we realize just how wicked we are and we go, oh, God, oh, God, help me, forgive me. That's not water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save. A person is only saved when they are immersed into Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Immersion into Christ Jesus rescues the sinner from hell and brings access to heaven. It's that immersion into Christ that saves. And when a person is immersed into Christ, one of their responses is, baptize me. I think I have time. I love this story. And maybe I've shared it before, but I'm going to share it again. I'm in India and we're in a prison, a men's prison. And we begin to share our testimonies and there's a message being preached and then there's six, eight of us guys. I don't remember exactly how many. And we preached the gospel to these men in prison. And six men came to Christ. They made a confession to be saved. Right there, you know, we're just going, oh man, God showed up, right? So that's exciting. And four of the guys got up and, and you can tell something's occurred, and they kind of back away a little bit and everything. But two men stayed on, on the area, the, the platform kind of area, and they stayed there, kneeling on the, on the ground. And we're kind of going, okay, this is awkward. And they begin to have a conversation with, with my brother, Samrat. He, he understands, he's one of them, so they could talk. I mean, I can't understand their language. And they're having this conversation. And it sounds to us like it's getting kind of intense. And they won't get up. They won't relent. And, and this, this car, it's like an argument. And then the commandant of the, the prison comes over and he starts to get involved. And then me and the other leader of this men's group, we're going, we need to back out of here and we need to head for the exit. That was our response. We're starting to pull away because this could be, you know, the commandant comes in. Who knows what's going to happen? All the while, these two guys are still kneeling and they're carrying on this, this really kind of heated argument is what it appeared. And all of a sudden, Samrat turns around and he's got this, this grin on his face and he goes, this is amazing. Well, what's going on? He goes, they told me that they have been reading the Bible and they came to Christ today, but they want to do what the Bible says. They want to get baptized. Don't leave until you baptize us because we came to Christ. And we're just going, this is unbelievable. This is just like, did this really happen? They're doing what is right. They got saved. What do they want to do next? They want to get baptized. And you need to understand in that culture, as a Christian, you very often were not persecuted as a Christian until you got baptized. So here's these two guys who've come to Christ, and they're willing to publicly... You know, there's 80, 90 men in this, this crowd watching this whole thing, listening to this whole thing, and they're going, we've come to Christ, now baptize us. They were immersed into Christ and saved. They're saved just like the other six, I'm guessing. i I'm guessing. But they wanted the obedience. So they chose to be baptized. Water baptism does not save, but it's a sign that you are saved. Now, all of this refers back to and is connected to Christ's triumph through his suffering. Peter then goes to his conclusion which is a passage of glorious acknowledgement about who Christ is. Verse 22, who, he's referring to Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The right hand of God throughout Scripture and other places in, in, in ancient writings, that, that Idea of being at the right hand of royalty is understood to mean a place of prestige and power. Being at the right hand is the greatest place of honor and authority. And, and this is where Jesus went after he's completed his work of redemption. He's gone to prison. He's preached there. He's he's risen from the dead. He's he's met with his believers after his death, and then he ascends into heaven. Where does he go when he ascends to heaven? To the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he's at. And what's he doing at that place of greatest authority? He's praying for us. He's he's taking the position of supreme authority. Supreme authority over Satan and creation and everything. And he's spending his time praying for his believers. Christ's death and resurrection caused all fallen and rebellious angel, angelic beings to be subject to him. All of creation is subject to Christ. Christ's sacrifice and triumph over death also rescued every believer from eternal judgment. It's a done deal. If you're a believer, you're going to go through. It might be terrible here, but we get through it. All of this, all of this is an incredible act of grace. Christ died for lost human souls and put an end to the helplessness of sin. Satan has lost and believers live triumphant in Christ. All of that is by grace, cuz none of us deserve it. None of us are worthy of it. God just doesn't cuz he is gracious and loving and amazing. There will be a time when every believer will be with Jesus in heaven. And we along with all of the other created beings, everything that's created, everything will glorify God. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. That's a restatement that we need to go, yeah, we can repeat that continuously. And never get bored with hearing that. And I close with another passage that, that just goes deep into my soul. It, it, no matter how many times you repeat this if you understand what Christ has done, if you have been immersed into Christ, you get this. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that you are so loving and so merciful and so full of grace that you sent your Son. Jesus, thank you that you willingly went through this incredibly terrible way of dying so that I could be with you for all of eternity. I ask, Father, for anyone here or anyone watching who has not given their life to Christ, that they would come to Christ now, that they would agree with God that they're sinners, and they would cry out to God for forgiveness. Come to Jesus. Be rescued and know that no matter what the circumstances no matter what the judgment that occurs in the future we see it through just like Noah and his family because we have been immersed in Christ you too can have that today cry out to God believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead believe that God loves you Father, thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for the body of Christ gathered this morning here physically and those that are gathered with us because of technology. Thank you. And we belong to you. Thank you, Jesus, for being Lord. May our lives glorify you as we go from here today.